Welcome to the BC Podcast, featuring a weekly message from Believer's Church in Warren, Ohio. For more information, visit www.believers.cc. Believer's Church. Man, it's good to see you guys here tonight. How many of you had to go through a monsoon to get here today? Like you, your umbrella was broken as you came in. Man, I'm proud of you guys for making it out tonight. You are not going to be disappointed. If you're new here, my name is Joe, and I get to serve on our lead team here, and I am surrounded by some amazing people, and uh, we're going to do this thing called a generations panel tonight. I'm going to explain that in just a moment, but I'll just say this. Um, We we are a church that is all about uh, not just reaching, but empowering every generation, and so I'm going to kind of frame the conversation in a moment. Before we do that, I want to introduce our panel to you. And uh, we were really intentional about who we invited to be a part of this. I can honestly say that each of these people, for various reasons, are people that have impacted my life. They're my friends. They're my mentors. They're the people that I look up to. And uh, they're each in different, unique stages in their life. So we did that on purpose because we really felt like each of them would have some things to contribute to your life. And so I'm going to just, without any further ado, we're going to start down here at this end. And I want them to introduce themselves to you tonight. Make some noise for them, all right? (laughs) I just found out the rest of them were invited. I had to pay $50 to get onto this panel. I didn't, what is wrong with that? My name is Graham, and I'm the uh, campus pastor for Boardman, and we'll be launching that way very, very shortly. And i uh, been married for 34 years. 33 years or 34, Lori? 34? Yeah, something like that. We're working on it, guys. Anyways, it's my beautiful wife, Lori. We've been here since 2013. And uh, we have three grown sons, uh, age, uh, in age from 26 to 32, two daughter-in-laws, no grandkids yet, but my wife is putting a lot of pressure on those girls, so I'm sure it's going to happen soon. All right, so my name is Matt Wilden, and uh, thank you. Part of the uh, lead team here at Believers also, I oversee what we call our connections here. Uh, and I am married. My wife's name is Ann. We've been married for about five years now. Uh, been at, I've been at BC uh, for about 15 years. I haven't, I've only worked here about five years, but been attending 15 years now. Uh, my wife and I have two kids. Isaac, he is three years old. And Jude, he is 18 months old, almost 18 months. So, um, but yeah, so excited to be a part of this tonight. Good evening. My name is Tony Denunzio, and I'm on the lead team here. And uh, we've been attending Believers for about 17 years. Um, I'm married to an amazing man named Dominic Denunzio. We have three amazing children, Stephen, who's soon to be married to Michelle. We're looking forward to that for this weekend coming up here soon. Um, we have a daughter, Gabrielle, uh, who married Michael Roberts, and they've given us our first grandchild. Um, and we are going to be grandparents again, and we're going to be grandparents to twins. So we're excited about that. Um, We also have a son, Preston, and uh, he lives in L.A. Gabby lives in Ventura, California, Um, and uh, we have been blessed by these three and uh, just enjoy who they are and what they've added to our life. And my name's Ryan. I am, oh, thank you. Um, I'm 26 years old. I'm the youth pastor here, and um, I'm married uh, to Kristen. We've been married for four months now. Yeah. So I know everything there is to know about marriage. Um, but uh, no, I, I get, I'm excited to be up here because I get to work firsthand with the next generation, and I can tell you the future is very bright. And so I'm very excited about tonight. 
That's amazing. And I'll just finish up by saying that I'm Joe. I've already introduced myself, but I, I uh, thank you. You're too kind. You're too kind, really. Keep it going. Stop, stop. Um, but uh, my beautiful wife was the one that got to lead that last song, Good, Good Father. That's Erin. So we can give it up for her because she's amazing. And then um, we, have, we have two beautiful kids. Joey is seven now, which is crazy. And Riley is five. She's almost done with kindergarten. So I feel like I've got a few grays coming in in my beard. I just feel like I have something to contribute in this conversation tonight. And um, here's what, what I wanted to do. I wanted to start by just kind of reminding us about maybe some things that we are already familiar with, but just so helpful to remember that this is the way that God thinks. I think it's so powerful to remember that God works through generations. He does. That's just, if you look from start to finish in the Bible, God works through and uses generations. And, and a great scripture um, that I think proves this point is Psalm 145.4. Listen to this. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. And I like this next part. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. So this is kind of the blueprint of what a believer should look like when it comes to generations is that, hey, God does some amazing things through you, through your trust and obedience to him, through your faithfulness. You maybe take some risks in your generation and walk, watch him do some amazing things, but then that's not the end of the story. The next part is for us to turn around and to actually tell the generation coming up next about God's faithfulness. And so it's this cycle that's meant to keep repeating. And it's why you'll read things like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Because God thinks generationally. Now, I just think this is fascinating because our culture thinks generationally too. I mean, they're very intentional about how they reach the next generation and even indoctrinate the next generation. There's this quote that I've, I've quoted it for years. It's from 1982 from, from the, an executive at MTV. His name was Bob Pittman. And here's what he said. Um, if, you, if you can get their emotions going, make them forget their logic, you've got them. At MTV, we don't just shoot for the 14-year-olds, we own them. And, uh, man, that's just, to me, such a sobering thought that, uh, first of all, they own Nickelodeon, right? So they are the same people that are programming all of the things that our kids are watching. And then they are slowly but surely uh, indoctrinating our kids and teaching them how to think. And so they're intentional about it. That, that's the way our culture thinks. They, they are not missing a beat. Now, I don't often quote Adolf Hitler, uh, but when I do, I, uh, <laughs> I, I think this is a fascinating quote. This is what he said. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. And so I, I think that the enemy thinks this way too. I mean, uh, a quote that I've loved for years by Joel Stockstill is this, that the enemy will try to kill in infancy what he knows he cannot kill in maturity. And so you, you see this in, in the Bible over and over again. If he senses the enemy, because he doesn't know the beginning from the end, but he can see signs. So if he senses that God is about to do something big, like the Israelites as they're growing in number, then what does he do? He tries to kill them out. So he'll kill all of the firstborns from an entire generation when Moses is on the scene. Who else did he do this for? for when Jesus comes on the scene, he does it through Herod, and, and he kills an entire firstborn of generations again. He will always try to take out in infancy what he knows he cannot take out in maturity. And so here at Believer's Church, we've just determined this. It's a core value. We are generational. And I know that a lot of churches out there in America that are reaching tons of young people. And I know lots of churches that are reaching tons of seasoned saints. Did you like that? But very few are reaching both. And so for us as a church, we have just determined that we are going to be a church that doesn't just reach one generation and fade into obscurity. We paid a price to be able to reach this generation and now the next generation. And so that's 
what a lot of this conversation tonight is all about. We're poised as a church as we renovate the side of the facility uh, to not just make a dent, but make a difference here in Trumbull County and beyond. And so we just wanted to all link arms and get on the same page. And I want, by the end of the night, here's my prayer, that we wouldn't just want the next gen to win. We would want each gen to, gen to win, and we would want to help each other get there. Is that cool? That's, that's what we want. Yeah, we can give it up for God on that one. So here's what I thought would be helpful. You know, sometimes it's easy to just get our generation, but to kind of miss out on what the other generations went through and why they are the way they are. And so um, there's, there's a little bit of an overview we're just going to do real quickly with Pastor Graham, and I'm going to turn it over to him. Yeah, so I'm going to cheat a little bit, guys. These are my cliff notes, all right? So I'm going to go side saddle for a second here. But if you look behind me, you're going to see a chart up there. And what social scientists tell us today is that for the first time in modern history, we have six generations all alive at the same time because people are living longer. So these are five generations that are definitely represented here tonight. The first one is the silent generation. Silent generation born from 1929 to 1945. And each generation they've done here is they've given them a life paradigm. That sort of just defines that generation. And so this is a generation that's defined by the words, be grateful you have a job. So think about it. They were born in the Great Depression. This is my parents. My dad was born in 1931. My mom was born in 35. They knew poverty at a level I have never known it in my life. Uh, they knew tough times. My mom remembers being a five-year-old girl in Northern Ireland and having to learn how to put on a gas mask because they were starting to drop bombs in their city and being evacuated to the country. They went through a lot of tough times. And when they came out, these were people that didn't have hardly anything. When they came out with their lives, they were grateful. And they were the silent generation. They didn't protest. They didn't carry banners and stuff like that. They just, they just did their job silently. And some call them the greatest generation. And so this generation uh, is, is an awesome generation. This generation, because of what they went through, a lot of them are called savers. How many had some parents like that? They're very frugal. Uh, I was earning a quarter a week for allowance, if you can believe that, when I was eight years old, cutting along with a push mower, taking out trash. And I complained that my neighbors were making a dollar. My dad threatened to go hire someone else for less. So this is who our parents were, right? Great people. We love this generation. And then as we go to the boomers, that's from 1946 to 1964. And the reason they're called the baby boomers is because nine months after the war ended, World War II, the maternity wards filled up. And this generation, we saw 76 million babies born in that time span. So we're, you know, just getting larger and larger, spreading out bigger schools. Everything's bigger. We kind of got some swag to us, like, hey, we won the war. There's nothing we can't do. And we actually are the generation that kind of started that whole entitlement thing. We said, you owe me. You owe me a better life than mom and dad had. I can certainly do better. And then we, so we went from caution to swag, and then we swing back to caution again, and we go to the buster generation. Before they're called Generation X, they're actually called the busters. Now, the busters, they basically came on the scene in 1965, and they were born into Vietnam. They were born into a time called Watergate, the sexual revolution, Roe v. Wade. And one of the reasons they're called the busters is because 1965 was, for the first time, the public introduction of the birth control pill. That combined with Roe v. Wade, and we now have a shrinking population. They're called the busters. And because they've gone through so much upheaval, what they really want is a real, authentic relationship. So their life paradigm is relate to me. 
Then we come to the millennials. Any millennials in this room? You were born in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, we love you guys. Uh, you're also called Generation Y. And uh, Generation Y, their life paradigm is life is a cafeteria. Anybody grow up like me, you love to go to smorgasbords and cafeterias. And why? Because you get to pick and choose what you like and leave what you don't. And that's how life is for them. So think with me for a second here. Today, higher education institutions are allowing people for the first time to create their own majors. Can you believe that? Seriously, like, I'm going to be a political science major with an emphasis in trolling. You know, it's like, you could make a good career right now if that was your thing. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, they do that. I mean, think about it. When I was growing up, we heard a song on the radio. We had to go to the store and buy a 45 or a whole album, and you listen to the whole thing because you don't want to get up and keep moving the needle. But When's the last time you, as a millennial, bought a CD? You don't even remember it so long ago. You either buy a song or you have Spotify and you build your own playlist. It's kind of mix, max, uh, mix and match and choose your own thing. And, and that sort of is happening spiritually as well because we have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, maybe some Dalai Lama sprinkled in there with a little bit of New Age and Oprah. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got that kind of generation. And then finally, we come to Generation Z, which one social scientist called them the homelanders. And the reason they're called the homelanders is because they were born in, nine, you know, the year that we had 9-11, right? And that's the year that we started the Department of Homeland Security. So Generation Z. And so these guys have come into it. Think about it. We've had a couple of serious recessions. Uh, we've had 26,000-plus terrorist attacks worldwide since 9-11. And even if the world isn't necessarily darker, it sure seems like it because, by the way, this generation has always had the Internet in their back pocket. So every bad thing that happens, not only in Niles, but in somewhere in Timbuktu, they know about it immediately. It's negative. And so their life paradigm is simply I'm coping and I'm hoping and I'm hacking my way through life. And here's what a lot of people say. They'll look at Generation Y and Generation Z, and they'll say, man, they are the problem. If they were more like us, we feel completely the opposite here at Believer's Church. We feel like they are the solution and that they can do more and be greater and accomplish way more than we've ever accomplished. And that's what we believe. And so it's us all working together. And we're here now at this point in our life with wisdom, right, to be supporting these young folks as they move out into the world. We want to help them win. That's so helpful. And, uh, you know, I want to turn it over to our, our youth pastor, Ryan, in just a second here, because I want him to just maybe talk to some of the people that fit into the millennial and the Generation Z category. They're not familiar with Watergate. The most that they've seen in the way of scandals is Deflategate. You know, that's just their world. But um, it's helpful just for us to get kind of a view and a perspective of what they're facing in the world that they're living in. Yeah, and I think it's crucial for us to understand that all of us, we operate from a certain set of assumptions. So there's certain things we believe because of the way the world is presented to us. Um, you know, when I moved from California, I realized that the air in Ohio is a lot fresher than it is where I used to live. But I didn't recognize that when I live in that polluted air. In fact, I was just breathing it in every day. And there are certain pollutants or there are certain factors that are in our world every day that our young people and everybody's just breathing in. And we don't necessarily recognize them. So we're going to set the context or set the scene um, and, and talk about what are the things that are present in our world, and because of that, what assumptions are we working from? So the first one is very present in our world is speed. 
Um, there's a ton of speed in everything. I, I, just today, I was like, the internet was not working perfectly, and so because the website I was trying to load took more than 10 seconds, I was thinking about getting a new phone. You know, I mean, it's just, we don't, we don't like to put up with slow, and so we've come to this conclusion that, or this assumption that slow is bad. And so we, we say, okay, speed is good, slow is bad. The second thing that's present is this idea of, um, let's put the next one up right here, um, convenience. And so we, we think, okay, um, our world is full of convenience, right? And so it makes us think that if we have all of this convenience, that hard is bad. And if you ask most school teachers, what are the complaints you're hearing the most from your, your students? Very often, the thing they're hearing the most is, this is too hard. Um, this is way too hard. And so instead of maybe feeling like they can rise to that challenge, they're feeling like, uh, it's just not convenient enough for me. And then the third thing that we're seeing that's available in our world is that there's tons of entertainment. And this kind of shows up in a lot of different ways. This could be when you're at home and, you know, you're just sitting around watching YouTube videos of cats. Or this could be like, oh, I'm bored driving, so let me just pull up some Netflix. Um, but the, the thing that we're noticing is, okay, because the world is full of entertainment, we're realizing that people are assuming that boredom is bad. And um, this is not new to this generation. In fact, all generations have probably tried to avoid boredom in some very destructive ways, I'm sure. But um, the, the truth is what researchers are finding is that boredom is actually a catalyst sometimes for creativity. It's a catalyst sometimes for uh, empathy. So there's certain things that you learn to develop in that time of boredom. And so you don't want to just be overstimulated all the time. Um, the, the fourth thing that we're seeing the world is full of is nurture. We're seeing that everybody is super coddled. It's the bubble wrap gener generation, right? Like every kid's walking outside like this, you know, and they're in bubble wrap. And um, we've kind of said, okay, because of this, risk is bad. Um, we don't want risk. And admittedly, some risks are bad, but there are still some risks that are actually appropriate risks. There's sometimes where we should fail, and we should build some resilience, and we should build the ability to get back up and go back out there. And so we're realizing, okay, because of the world where it's at, that risk is hard. Um, and then the final thing is entitlement. Um, because the world is full of entitlement, which basically says, I deserve to be here because I'm here, um, as opposed to saying, okay, let's go ahead and put the hard work in. And so we've kind of come to believe that labor is bad. And, and so why do I bring this up? I don't bring this up to say, oh, well, this is hopeless, this is terrible, but it's important to recognize that if this is the air we're breathing in, if this is the scene, if this is the context, that we have to be very intentional about counteracting some of these things, be very intentional about building some of these life skills into our young people so that they can lead the next generations and the generations after them with some great skills and some life skills. And maybe young people tonight, as we go into uh, this panel, some of these things that we're going to be talking about specifically um, you may not be a parent. You may not be someone who is raising kids, or there's some things we're going to talk about that don't apply to right here and right now. But I, I want to challenge you guys to really lock in, to, to lean in, because you might be living in some of the brokenness of some of the failures of some of these things. And so if you can learn this, maybe some of those frustrations you've had uh, can be something where you're able to make it better for your kids, or maybe you're able to create that situation situation. And so we want to encourage you um, to really take that moment and learn from the next generation and understand um, one of the most powerful things you can learn is that you don't know it all and that we need to learn and we need to continue to grow. So I, I want to just challenge you, if you're my age and younger in here, let's just take that posture that says, hey, I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to grow because 
some of these people have, have experienced things I haven't experienced, and they can help me take these steps in my life. Yeah, that's so helpful. And uh, with, without uh, any further ado, I think we're ready to dive into some questions. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'd love to do throughout the course of this night is just address some of the different groups of people that are in this audience. And so I see a lot of people that are parents. And uh, being a parent, man, I can just tell you that I knew everything about parenting until I became a parent. Like, I just really did. And uh, all of a sudden, all the things that I had so well figured out about all the parents around me kind of melted away the minute that I held this life in my hand. And I was responsible for him for the rest of forever. Like, that's a sobering thought. And um, Matt and his wife... They're actually leading a group, and it's addressing some of the common mistakes that parents can make. And so, Matt, maybe you could, first of all, just start out by telling them about the book that Tim Elmore is the author of, and then what are some mistakes that you're, you're seeing uh, parents most commonly make, the, the ruts that they're most commonly falling into? Yeah, so the book, uh, it's called 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Can Avoid. Like Joe said, author's name is Tim Elmore, uh, and it's just an awesome book. Uh, you know, we're a couple weeks into the Connect Group already, and I feel like I've learned so much from this book, probably more in the last two weeks than I have in the last three years as a, as a parent. Uh, and it just brings so much to life, uh, things that I've, I've seen as a parent already. But uh, to answer your question, I think one of the biggest uh, difficulties parents face are really is, is communicating a message to our children and to our young people that really prepares them for adulthood. In the book, one of the things that he talks about is two set, two different sets of messages that we need to communicate to our children. In the first set of messages, he talks about, uh, he calls them the early childhood messages, and that would be from ages like zero birth to, to 10 years old. And the message that we need to communicate to our kids during that point in time is that they're special, they're loved, they're valuable, they have gifts, they're safe, and we're going to provide for them. And then once they hit adolescence, our message needs to shift to properly prepare them and equip them from adulthood. Our message needs to go from that early childhood message to uh, the adolescent message, which says, uh, life is difficult. You're really not as great as you might think you are, and uh, you are going to face setbacks in life, and you're not always going to be in control. But uh, what tends to happen as parents, like our loving nature really just wants to feed them this childhood message until they're adolescents, and then they, they become adults, and they enter the real world, and I was there myself, and it's just a wake-up call, and you realize that life is not what you thought it was going to be. So, um, you know, we owe it to our kids to, to really communicate a message of how life is going to be so that we can properly equip them for adulthood. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, I, I liked what Ryan was saying, that we lived in, we live in a nurture culture. So everything is bubble wrap this and bubble wrap that. Uh, parents are, are, you know, they are, they are hover parents is what they call them, you know. Uh, there, there was this funny story that Tim Elmore shared in his book, Generation IY. And he was just talking about this mom who gets a call from her daughter. Her daughter is in her college class gets her paper graded and doesn't like the grade that her professor gives her, so decides to get her mom on the phone, puts the professor on the phone with her mom, and the mom starts chewing out the professor in front of the entire class. And that is just a normal occurrence. This is happening more and more. And, and here's, here's where I think the issue lies. I think most parents think that their primary goal is to make their kids happy. 
But Matt, can you talk to us about the danger when that is the goal in and of itself? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's almost counterintuitive to think that our goal shouldn't be to make our kids happy because what parent hasn't said, all I want is for my kids to be happy in life when they grow up. Uh, but the issue lies in, in really making that the goal and making that a priority uh, because happiness, what happiness really is, it's a byproduct of making good decisions. It's a byproduct of, of living a life that's about other people and a life that's about serving people. So really our goal as parents should be to help our children make wise decisions when, when they grow up. And uh, I think we owe it to the next generation really to, to, to prepare them to make wise decisions. And uh, we never want to sacrifice sh short-term happiness for long-term happiness. Just a quick story here. And um, like I know you guys are probably saying your son's three years old. Uh, what do you know about this? But let me tell you, my three-year-old son, um, he could watch TV literally from the time that he wakes up till the time he goes to bed at night, and he would not blink an eye, and he would be perfectly happy about it, and he would be in heaven if I were to let him do that. But as a parent, I obviously know that it's not a good decision to let my three-year-old son watch TV all day. So I need to sacrifice his short-term happiness for his long-term happiness, and I need to turn the TV off. And let me tell you, a three-year-old can throw quite the temper tantrum when you do that. So, um, but we owe it to, to our children to, to really do that, to, to prepare them for long-term happiness. And a, a few, excuse me, a few key things that uh, the author talks about in this book that we can uh, talk to our children about and things that they need to hear from us really to help them make wise decisions um, the, the first one that he talks about is watch. It's all about us really setting an example for our kids, showing them how to live a life that's, uh, that, that's about serving other people and how to, have, uh, uh, how to be fulfilled and have true happiness. And then the second thing he talks about is our children need to hear the word no, just like my son needs to hear the word no. You are not watching TV all day long. Um, you know, kids have plenty of friends. What they need is a, is a mentor. They need parents. My sons, they only have one dad, and although it's going to be an unpleasant conversation at times, they need to hear the word no from me because uh, they're going to thank me for it later on in life. And then the next thing that they need to hear is the word wait. We live in this world of like instant gratification where everything is literally available at our fingertips. And just um, when we have to wait for things in life, I think it builds a certain muscle inside of us. And it really makes us appreciate the things that we have at a whole new level. And uh, we don't have this certain sense of an entitlement that we see uh, so much in, 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 in different people today. And then the last thing uh, that our kids need to hear from us is, is the word serve. And we need to show our kids uh, how to really be contributors and not always be um, consumers in this society. So we need to model a life of servanthood for our kids. Yeah, that's really good. I'd love to just camp out for a second. We've got a lot of wisdom here collectively. Um, Graham, Tony, Matt, what, what were some things that maybe you did intentionally uh, to, to push your kids and model servant, servanthood in front of them? Because that's something that's not just taught, that's caught, right? Yeah, I mean, we were talking uh, a little bit earlier, and I think Tony mentioned um, serving starts at home. And I think, uh, obviously, it depends on the age of your children, but, you know, they can start out serving their brothers, their sisters, their moms, their cousins, you know, their friends. And as they get a little bit older, you know, it might be, you know, you look at the lady across the street who's 79 years old, and 
you say, hey, Ryan, it'd be really nice for you, wouldn't it, for, to, for you to just go pull her trash cans in today? Wouldn't that be nice? Or to bring her paper to her, or you see her walking her groceries in, you know, again, depending on the relationship, why don't you go ahead and help her in with those things? And so you start to build that culture that it's, you know, that there's, there's something great about actually um, being, you know, a neighbor and, and serving people, you know. And so I think it starts with little things, and uh, just kind of, I jumped on that, Tony, so you can go back. Just as we've had our conversations getting ready for this, um, you know, this, uh, the parents today have so much information. When I was raising my children, there were books just starting to come out. And um, there's a really good book now by the Eckridges, and it's called Love and Respect in the Home. And they talk about the order in the home and how love and respect is really important to teach children and uh, how they learn to serve one another. And so as Graham said, you know, we were talking earlier, that servant's heart starts in the home. Um, and then what Dom and I realized is they had to learn to watch us in our marriage serve one another. And as we were serving one another, uh, we taught them how to serve each other. And then we took it from the home out into the community, which was our, wherever our children were at, we got involved. If the school needed us, we served in the school. But then we took it one step further, which we thought was the most important foundation, was that we served in the church. And that no matter where or what age our children were, we made sure that we were in that stage of life with them serving. So if they were in this Kids for God area, we were serving in the Kids for God area. If they were in the Super Kids area, we transferred up to the Super Kids. So what we were trying to do was model for them a heart of serving and setting a foundation that life was not just about them, that they'd been called by the greatest servant of all, and that was to serve others, and that's where their fulfillment would come from. That's so good. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, the word happiness actually has its roots in the English language from the original word happenstance. So what, what it's actually painting the picture of is that um, happiness comes from what happens. You know, so that's typically what happens with, with some of us is we connect it to life events or how, how our life is going at any particular time. And so happiness can't be the goal. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to transcend that. And it's got to be this purpose that we feel that even through the highs and lows of life, even when things don't go our way, uh, even, even when life chews us up and spits us back out, that we still have a purpose on this earth. And, you know, I'd love to, to segue into this, this next topic. You know, Graham and Tony in particular, you guys, uh, you have put a lot of heavy lifting and hard work into raising kids, and they're actually all serving God. So, like, that's pretty amazing. I think we should give it up for them because that's not just an ordinary thing. And I know we have so many parents in the audience that, that are in that same position. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about is how each kid, each child is unique. None of them are the same. And so there's not like a one-size-fits-all parenting manual. Uh, it takes work, and, and it takes being intentional with each of your kids. So could you guys share with us just some tips on how we can identify the uniqueness in our child and then bring out the best in them? Um, I, uh, before I even had children, um, I remember being in prayer one day. Um, Dom and I had found out that we were told we would never have children, and I remember crying out to God, and praying, and he gave me three things to pray for my children. And one of them, uh, of the things, was that I would, that my husband and I would be very attentive to the gifts and talents and abilities that we were observing in them. And that we should take note of those things and then nurture them in those areas. That we didn't need to have our children in a million different functions. And we did at one point start out being that way and realized 
that wasn't going to be a house that had a lot of happy moments because there'd be too much running and there wouldn't be enough family time or downtime. So, but we were, the Lord just encouraged me to pray every day before I even had children to realize that they were uniquely made. They were not uh, taken like a cookie cutter and cook out, cook, you know, they all look the same. They were not all going to be the same. They were going to be unique. Um, you know, I wouldn't have known that I would have had two boys and one daughter at that time. But each of them um, and their personalities, even though it was Dom and I producing these children, all three of them are totally different than I and Dominic. And that is so creative uh, in itself. And I find that in awe of God, how amazing that is. And so when we would look at their different talents and abilities and giftings, um, we were intentional about placing them in those things. Um, we were intentional, intentional, intentional about making sure that whatever they wanted to be a part of, that there was also a foundation of them taking the word with them. And it's not that the, our kids did everything right. It's not that our kids, you know, walked the straight line and did everything that we had taught them in the things of God, but we did see how unique they were. And their uniqueness, the word says to train up a child in the ways of the Lord. And Pastor Joe just recently taught on that, and he talked about that meant routine. There had to be routine, something that you did that was routine for them. There was a security in that routine. There was a consistency in that routine. And those things are very valuable in raising children, especially in their uniqueness. And so in that um, training up a child, what Dom and I realized is even though the word said to us as parents, train up, train up a child in the ways of the Lord, and when they got old, they would not depart, there was a two-part to that because as we were training them, God was training us because there was a lot of things that coming from, I came from a broken home, that I had to unlearn, and it took me getting before the Lord and spending time in prayer and talking to God about each one of them and recognizing the uniqueness and wanting not to mold them into who I was or who their father was, but uh, enjoying the ride and allowing their creativity to minister to us and teach us about the things of God as well as us teaching them about the things of God. That's great stuff. Um, I think his book said, what was it, 12 Huge Mistakes that parents... I've made a lot more than 12, I'm telling you that right now. Um, but uh, when I think about it, I think one thing that I want to say is I heard my parents say this. And, uh, you know, they'd lived long enough to see the damage of this. Uh, they always had a saying, and it was that we don't have a favorite child. We know that having favorites is very, very deadly and poisonous to your family. And uh, sometimes it is easy to develop favorites because maybe that one person's a little bit more like you or less like you. And so one of the things that we determine is we don't have favorites either. We love them all the same. Loving them all the same, though, means that we have to learn how to appreciate, understand, and value who God made them to be because God didn't give us this cookie-cutter kid. Like, that kid is a reflection of the glory of God. There's part of that kid's personality is an expression of God himself because we're created in his very image. So if I want to know what God looks like, I can just look at this room tonight and I can see a lot of what God is like because you're created in his image. And so uh, one of the things that we did was we didn't play favorites. And uh, my kids are very aware of that. And I think the other thing is that um, what I recognize is that I never waited for a kid to come over into my world and do the things I like. Like I went into their world. Does that make sense? I went into their world. In other words, like 
I might have one son that's a jock. Like, yeah, I can just remember this. Like, Stephen is, my oldest son is really, really smart, you know, and, and, and almost so smart that, so cerebral that when I tried to teach him athletic things, he overthought them, you know. And uh, I'd be out there working with him for like an hour on how to throw a baseball. And then Ryan would, you know, basically walk over, pick it up, and just fire it at me. And I'm like, what? You know? And then I got a middle son that has zero interest in athletics. He could care less about that. But at three years of age, my wife shows me a picture that he drew. And I'm like, nah, he didn't draw that. Come on. That can't be him. He's only three. It's like this Disney. It's like he wanted to be an animator. So, you know, it's like... What do you do? Do you push him all into, hey, well, this is the way it's going to be? No, it's like, hey, you know what? His passion is uh, being artistic and creative. He's one of the most creative people I know. Uh, to this day, he blows me away. And so, you know what? I'm not a good artist, but I can remember when he's three years old, man, we found a beautiful book that had a huge Disney castle. I bought a big old poster, and I'm down there drawing that castle with him. My half of the castle was horrible, and his half was amazing, you know? But in other words, we learn to value and appreciate who they are, and we, we want to sort of uh, help them live out that purpose because God wired them a certain way. And part of wisdom is knowing how to understand that wiring and help them along that path. As Tony said, you know, the way that they should go, you know, in, in line with their giftings, their callings, their purpose. And so I think for me, um, one of the big positives was making sure they knew there were no favorites. And secondly, making sure that I crossed over into their world instead of waiting for them to come to mine. That's really helpful. So I'd imagine that in, in raising each of you, three, three kids, that there had to be some moments where just in, in trying to, to reach out in their uniqueness, there, were just, there was some comedy. There, there were some moments where things just went different than you planned. Any story maybe you guys would care to share? Uh, even Ryan, if you have one as the son. Um. Well... Um, <laughs> You know, both uh -oh. of my older brothers were, like, really into school. That I think they both averaged above 4.0. Is that even possible? And, uh, and so they... Yes, it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never really found out. Never put the time in. Um, you know, I would just say, hey, there's always something that will motivate, or there's something deep inside of each kid that will motivate them. For me, it wasn't going to be school. And, uh, you know, I remember I got to age 13. Both my brothers had been in honors classes, and they were killing it. They were doing awesome. Um, and then I just used to lie to my parents and say, oh, I don't have any homework tonight. And uh, I, just night after night, Ryan, you don't have any more homework? I'm like, no, no homework. And, and so I would just never do my homework. Um, I was just super lazy. Um, I got like fake sick every Monday morning. Um, I think I really was sick of school. I'm not sure. But, you know, it was just like this really embarrassing thing, I'm sure, for my parents. And, uh, you know, what I realized is that there were things that were going to motivate me to work hard. And I found out later on that, you know, when I got a 2.1 and I had to have a, you know, a 2.0 to stay eligible to play baseball, all of a sudden it made me think, oh, I better start getting my grades up. And, and so there are things that will motivate them, even if you feel like, oh, no, they don't have any motivation. First of all, hope is not lost. <laughs> um, you know, they're not always going to be 13 uh, or, they're, or 15 or 17. Um, you know, my brain didn't fully develop um, until age 25. Scientists will tell you um, 25 is usually when it starts to develop. I actually remember like a year, like a month after I turned 25, I was sitting in my car one day, and all of a sudden I just was like, oh my gosh, all these things I've been doing have been really stupid. I should change that. And I was like, I remember the moment where my brain fully connected. So just give them some time. Uh, you never know how this is going to go, but you know, 
each kid will eventually, you know, just keep showing them the love. And, and my parents never gave up on me. They, they kept showing me the love, and it eventually paid off, and I, I did much better the next day. That's awesome. I'm 30, and my wife will tell you she's still waiting for that moment. So just stretch your hands forward right now. We're going to pray for me. Um, now, this, this is helpful. I think the last, you know, as, as we kind of round third and head home, I'd love to just talk about um, how, how we as parents raise our kids in a culture that is really teaching them the exact opposite. You know, there, there are some challenges that lie within um, the environments that we're raising them in. And so um, I'd love to just hear what you guys, you know, what are some, some tried and true methods that have worked in your life, uh, raising your kids in an environment where they might actually be teaching them the exact opposite of what you are at the home. Um, whatever, whoever would like to speak to that. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of them is, is uh, you know, knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. How many would agree that you can, I could take a course on how to, how to build a brick fence. This does not mean I know how to build a brick fence. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a whole different application to get out there and actually do it. That, that calls for wisdom. That means I actually know how to actually apply that, that knowledge and execute it. And I think with kids, a lot of times it's like, you're, you know, Lori and I established real, like before we had kids, that our number one job and the greatest thing we would ever do in life would be to hand our faith off to our kids. That was priority number one. And so your kids are getting all this knowledge, but then they're going to school and they're coming home and saying, hey, we're the only kids, you know, at our Christian school that don't get to listen to the radio and we don't get to have all these CDs. Um, those are little round things that you can put into this machine, and they actually they play stuff. And uh, they're like, uh, you know, we don't get to do this. And I remember my one son came home, and um, and this is where, like, you know, Tony talked a lot about just uh, just trusting in the Lord. We really do have to lean on God, don't we? And uh, my son came home, and he said, you know, I'm the only one in my school that doesn't get to do this, and why are you and Mom, you know, so strict? And, and, and you know, the initial reaction was, that, you know, because that's the way it is, you know. And, um, but I talked to Lori and I said, you know what, uh, this is a really good kid and this kid will do what we ask him, but I feel like we're not really teaching him anything that there's going to be a seed of rebellion that's going to rise in him later on. He's going to say, I don't understand why you didn't let me do that. Like why? Because he wasn't part of the process, was he? He was separate. We just decided and told him, this is the commandment thou, thou shalt do it. But making him part of the process was this. We took the lyrics and we said, Hey, Let's talk about this. I want you to download all the lyrics on every song on that album, and we're going to read them together. And we did. And, you know, there was only one song that had lyrics in it that we didn't approve of, and we said, you know what? We've talked this over. We've prayed about it. We're going to let you buy this CD. And here's the deal, though. If we catch you listening to song number 11, we yank it. It's done. And what were we doing? We were helping him to learn how to do what? To build his own muscle. Because what happens if you don't do that, if you don't allow kids to build their own muscle, what happens is the kids that get out of the house where you've been so strict that you've never let them develop their own discernment and build that wisdom, they will literally sometimes be the kids that just go crazy and, and start partying and just doing all kinds of stuff because they now have a choice. And so if you can allow them to start building that muscle before they leave your house, guess what? They can discern. It's like, hey, if my kids came home and said, hey, I want to buy this. You know, I want to buy, you know, Chance the Rapper's latest CD or whatever. I'm like, hey, let's download Chance's lyrics and see how they look. 
Oh, there might be like half the songs we don't want you to listen to because about every third word is profane. You know, let's build some muscles here. Do you know what I mean? So that's just one thing I would say is let them be part of the process and bring them into it so that they can learn how to make good decisions as adults. Um, you know, just as an encouragement to parents and to young people, um, you know, this generation actually has more information probably than any other generation before it. Um, I, I've heard something crazy, but it's something like every so like every month or so that like information is literally doubling. Like our, our known knowledge is actually doubling. Um, that's the speed at which we're gaining new information. And so we have ton of information. What we don't always has, have is interpretation. Um, what do I do with this information? Um, okay, I know all of these things. I see everything that's going on. How do I actually build that interpretation? And just to echo that, um, you know, it is not easy and cut and dry to be a young person. There's a lot of things that are very confusing, and there's a lot of questions that maybe that they're facing that are not so black and white as they used to be when you grew up. And so one of the things that you may not be able to do is go through each and every item and say, okay, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, definitely not right. Um, but what you can do is begin to build in them a discernment through the Word of God and say, okay, um, I'm going to be able to help you say, okay, how would God want me to approach this? And so that way, even when you're not in the room, all of a sudden they're beginning to, like you said, build that muscle that says, okay, I know I have some information here. How can I begin to interpret this in a way that will be most fulfilling long term? And so it's not just about doing everything for them. Uh, sometimes the best thing you can do is to do it alongside of them so that way when they're not right there next to you that they can make those decisions uh, in a God-honoring way, something that will be best for them. Yeah, that's so good. You know, Matt, in this book that you guys are reading in your Connect group, uh, one of the things that you mentioned to me is this concept of fences. That sometimes there's these decisions that uh, are absolutely decisions parents need to make for the kids. Sometimes there are decisions that we can actually give kids permission to make. And so why don't you explain the concept of fences? Yeah, so as parents, we all build fences around our children as they're growing up. When they live in our household, they have certain fences and parameters that they really need to, to live within. Uh, and fences, I guess, could be described as just values that we um, try to relay to our, to our children that are going to just really guide them, that are going to protect them, that are going to keep them safe. But at some point in every children's life, there needs to come a shift. Uh, there, a shift needs to happen where they begin to develop their own fences and they step out from the boundaries of the fences that we created with them. And I think the tendency of every parent when that process begins to happen as parents, we just want to, we want to gain control of that. We want to tell them how to develop the fences that they're putting around them. But what that causes them to do is actually build their fences farther out than we'd ever want them to build. And our hope, obviously, is for them to, to build their fences right next to, to our fences. Um, and one of the things that he talks about in the book are just a couple different things that we can uh, equip our kids with to help guide them in that fence-making process. And the first thing that he talks about is, uh, is be a role model for them. Live a life that you want them to live. Teach them how to, how, how to, how to live their life uh, in a way that's going to develop that happiness. And then, then the second thing uh, that we can do for them is teach them a proper worldview. Uh, worldview is really just the lens and kind of the perspective that they interpret everything that goes around us uh, through. And it's our role and our responsibility as parents just to give them per some perspective with that and, and teach them how to develop that worldview. And then the, the next thing would be critical 
thinking. Um, you know, we want to teach our kids how to evaluate the, the, the culture. This goes back to kind of what Ryan and Graham were talking about. Don't just do it for them. Uh, don't just make decisions for them. Let them take part in the process and, and think through it and help them understand, um, you know, why this might not be the best decision possible. And then the last thing that he talks about is principles. And we just are, as parents, we're responsible for teaching our kids principles that are going to guide them in life to making good decisions. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, we're getting, we're getting ready to kind of draw to a close here. And, you know, I just think back in my life, obviously, I grew up in a pastor's home, you know, some of the oldest of four kids. And I'm really convinced of this, especially now looking at my two kids. I think that God gives us glimpses of the future of our kids through what we see in them today. And sometimes it's raw and it's unpolished. I, you know, I grew up in our Christian school, and there was just something in me that wanted to kind of buck authority. So, like, the best that I could do most of the time was, like, not tuck my shirt in because it was a private school. And, you know, that was really being the rebel then, you know. Or, but there was this one day we were in gym class, and uh, I got set up in this situation where I felt like, man, this is a lose-lose. Because we had the guys against the girls in a game of tug-of-war. And I just thought to myself, there's no way I can come out of this looking awesome because if I win, I'm supposed to. And if I lose, I just lost to a team full of girls at tug of war. You following me? And so uh, I had this idea. This is the leader in me at just a young age. I'm in sixth grade. I just thought to myself, if I see that we're starting to lose, I'm going to whisper to the other guys in my line and say, let's let go on the count of three. And so um, there were some girls that were pretty strong on the other side, I'm not going to lie. And so we are just like, we, you know, they say go, and we start to realize that we're losing ground. And I'm like, all right, fellas, on the count of three, counted to three, and we let go. And it was like in slow motion, everyone is falling to the ground. There's broken clavicles, and just, it was, uh, it was awful. And uh, I got suspended for that, hello. And, um, but I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful that there were my parents and People like my youth pastor at the time are just different, different leaders that were actually just students in Paramount that saw, saw these glimpses that God was giving them of me in, in the future potential, right? It's like Pastor Mike Roberts, who used to be our youth pastor, he, he always used to say, hey, God doesn't just see the kid in you, he sees the king in you. And it's like, man, leaders and parents, if we could just begin to see the potential and the purpose that is deep inside of these kids that God's blessed us with and challenged us with uh, to, to raise, then, man, we'd start to see this thing come alive in them as you nurture that. And so let's, let's begin to just learn to build a filter for, for their faith and teach them uh, how to build fences. And ultimately, I believe they're going to build them on their own one day. They're going to serve God because they, they get to, not because they got to. And uh, here's where I want to end. I want to I ask this simple question. I, I realize, uh, Graham and Tony, that there are probably some, some parents in here that uh, they kind of feel like, man, that ship has sailed. Um, my, my kids are out of the house, or when I was raising my kids, um, I, didn't, I wasn't serving God. And um, I would love to just speak to them, because I think that there's still hope, and I would love for them to hear God's perspective on that. So what would you guys say to, to that parent that's sitting here tonight? Yeah, I would say to those parents who um, think the boat has sailed, and, you know, I didn't raise my children in the things of God, and now they're grown, they're gone, they're doing their own thing. Um, what hope do I have? <clears throat> the hope you have is you serve the God of hope. And your prayers are so powerful. And his word says that when you pray, he not only hears you, but he answers you. And his heart is about salvation. His heart is about bringing the generation from past generation to past generation to a place of fulfillment in the things they were called to do. So I would just say to you, don't lose hope that you serve the God of hope. And that 
He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He never changes. And your prayers are so powerful. And the changes you've made in your life now are still as powerful of a witness as if you would have raised them in those things. And those things, and as an adult, are even more, um, they, they have this ability for you to, they'll look at you and say, something is different about you. Something has happened in you that, uh, you know, I maybe even longed for as a, a child, but didn't know what it was, and I now see it in you. So I would say, don't feel hopeless. Know that God has even your children. And remember this too, that the word talks about generations and that somewhere in generations behind you, somebody was already praying for the generations before you. And they were covering your children. I believe I walk with God today because of someone in our past generation that prayed for us and brought us to that place. So there is still hope. Yeah, and I would just try to be real brief here. I just I would say that uh, there's no one sitting here that isn't here because somebody prayed for you. That we talk about what we call, you know, we all have genealogy. We love to study our family trees and our history. There's the genealogy of prayer, and you, you are connected to someone's prayer. You're here because someone prayed. So I totally want to agree with what Tony is saying, that whether your child is 15 or 50, your prayers are powerful. God is working. Um, and one of the most encouraging passages in the whole Bible to me is, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes we look at people in the Bible and go, man, their faith was so much greater than ours. And not always. Um, I look at Zechariah, who was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth, and she had already gone through menopause and wasn't going to have kids. They couldn't have kids when she was in her prime. And one day an angel of the Lord showed up to him and said, hey, by the way, I'm here because of your prayers. If you look at that in the actual literal language, it says, I'm here because of the prayers you stopped praying long ago. Imagine that. God is faithful. Like, they stopped praying for kids. That angel came because of the prayers that they prayed a long time ago and stopped praying. And God still showed up and gave them John the Baptist, the greatest prophet until the New Testament time. So I want to say this, guys and, and gals, if you're praying, aunts, uncles, if you're praying, watch out. They don't stand a chance because Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says that it is impossible for his word to go back to his throne empty-handed without results. So if you're praying... God is moving. Um, now, I can attest to, to exactly what Graham's talking about because I wasn't always um, in the position to sit up on this stage right here. Um, I look back on my life, and I could share some crazy stories with you guys about the path that I was headed on. But, um, but God got a hold of me and completely changed my life. And people ask me, like, what happened? And it's exactly what Graham was talking about. I literally woke up one day, and I don't know why it was like this for me, but it just, like, I knew in the bottom of my heart, like, someone was literally praying for me uh, all night long, and they'd probably been praying me for a long time before that. But um, your prayers are powerful. The Bible says the prayers of a righteous man is fervent, and it's effective. So, um, Prayer is just an incredibly powerful thing, and uh, it, it's never too far gone for you guys. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to just ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to finish with the moment of prayer. I feel led to do this because I think that there are some people in the house that you, you're like, man, I didn't know you were going to be talking to me uh, in this moment. But yeah, I, I felt like that ship has sailed, and I felt like, like the kids in my life, uh, I didn't model that behavior uh, in front of them, and I don't know if there's any saving them. And I just thought of the prodigal son. 
And think about this. The prodigal son grew up in this environment where the dad, uh, all accounts being told, it seems like he was showing them exactly what it looked like to serve God. It was a stable environment. There wasn't anything that the dad didn't do that made the prodigal son leave. But I love that at a certain point he comes to his senses and he realizes that help is in the house. And I think that there are just some parents here that you just need to keep holding on and, and not try to fix your kids, but just keep helping them to see that help is in the house. And that if, if you put that into them at a young age, then when they grow old, they're not going to depart from it. There's something inside of them, and it's activated by your faithful prayers and not giving up and just loving them. And that every time they come back, even if it's for one day on a holiday, once a year, help them to see help is in the house, and God's going to do the rest. Let me just pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this amazing group of people. We thank you that Believer's Church is not just called to be a church that reaches a generation or two and then just fades into obscurity, but we thank you that we are called to usher in the return of Jesus Christ, and that's going to happen from generation to generation to generation. And so, Lord, I thank you that there are people in this room right now, students, that are hearing this message for the first time, and it's coming alive inside of them. And there's something that says, I can make a difference, and I might only be a senior in high school, but I can affect an eighth grader. I can affect a fourth grader. There might be some grandparents in the house, and they, they were ready to just go off into retirement, but you're just telling them, hey, if you're not dead, then you're not done, and you can still make a difference. And I thank you for every parent that's in the thick of it, and they haven't gotten any sleep for the last three years, and they're just tired from raising toddlers. I just thank you that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And I thank you that the answers that we need are found in your word as we're committed to raising up the next generation to reach this world for you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, can you say amen? Thank you for listening to the BC Podcast. Follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated, inspired, and encouraged.